we are in Genesis chapters 42, 43, and 44 this week. We are covering three chapters of text, and we are going to read them. And so this is a great week to pull out those paper Bibles and follow along, or if you use your Bible on your phone, because we're going to be going through some text today. The, the structure, a lot of the time, uh, I will, will be going through the text, and I'll just be providing kind of a running commentary where I stop to make some short statements along the way. There's only actually a couple of times that I'm going to be pausing to really flesh out some more teaching. So even though we're covering more text than usual, usual this morning, I actually have less to say, which might be good news for you. <clears throat> but I do believe that those two times, and there's three points, if you have your bulletins, there's an outline that you can follow along. I b believe that those two times that I am going to flesh out some teaching are really important and will be really beneficial for us. The title of the message is Conductors of Grace. Uh, there's a website, Gizmodo, that had an article about the most amazing electrocution stories. Not like death row kind of things, but they said, People love stories of near-fatal accidents. And back in the 1920s, when home electricity was really starting to become mainstream, there were more than enough death-defying electric shock stories to go around. The August 1923 issue of Practical Electrics magazine published the winners of a summer contest for the best electric shock stories. And fourth prize went to a guy who took a hacksaw to a two-inch mystery pipe. That didn't turn out very well for him. Third place went to a fisherman. He and his friend were fishing, and his friend threw his silk line over the trolley used by the electric power line. And he knew what he was doing, but he made sure to grab the cork butt of his rod. And, but at some point, he kind of got tired of fishing, and he told his friend, hey, why don't you use my rod for a little bit? And his friend, not looking at what was going on, reached over and grabbed it, and took all of that electric, electricity and found himself jumping into the water, trying to drown ultimately, but not succeeding, thankfully, in that. He ended up you know, being able to get out. And then his friend, who had set that thing up the way that it was, when he was trying to reel in the line, he touched a piece of brass on the reel and also got his own shock and found himself in the water. But actually, the grand prize winner was a man. This is all back from the 1920s, so a lot of this, I don't, I'm like, I don't even know what to picture in my head. But a man who was running pothead jumpers to an oil switch on the bottom of a switchboard, and he accidentally grabbed a live one and experienced 4,000 volts running through his body. Sometimes people get electrocuted because they didn't realize that a certain material would conduct electricity, right? They think that they're safe, and then they're like, whoa, I wasn't. When it comes to God's grace, our natural inclination, our instinct, is to think that God's grace is best suited for the good times in life. Right? Like that, the, the times when things are going as planned in our minds, as expected, when, when we feel like things are 
successful. That's when God's grace is really flowing best. But as we study these three chapters this morning, we're going to see that Joseph, well, we, we see the lightning, as I'm using it today, of God's grace being distributed in Joseph and his brother's lives. And what Joseph may have not realized earlier in his life, and his brothers definitely don't realize throughout the story today, is that it was the hardships they encountered that actually invited God's grace to flow even more in their life. And Joseph ends up testing his brothers to see if their hearts would be good conductors of grace, which I hope when we leave today that we will be ready and understand better how our hearts can be conductors of his grace. Before we do, let's pray. God, help us today, Lord. Help us to understand. Help us to learn. Help us to appreciate the word of God. Give, give my voice strength and endurance. Lord, sustain me as we read through these three chapters. And we pray that we would leave here more informed and transformed than we were when we walked in. That uh, there would be nothing in us that is resisting what you want to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to run through some text. I'll, I'll stop along the way to provide some short comments. Uh, and then it'll be towards the end of this first chapter that I'll pause a little bit. Verses 1 through 6. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you keep looking at each other? I like that. <laughs> He's like, what? Well, are you guys just going to stare at each other? We're running out of food here. Listen, he went on, I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we will live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he thought something might happen to him. The sons of Israel were among those who came to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Joseph was in charge of the country. He sold grain to all its people. His brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. So reading verse 6 might help you recall the dream that Joseph had earlier in his life. Now, we, this does, uh, you know, give us that picture, but this is not the fulfillment of that dream because if you remember in his dream, it was all of his brothers, but we are reminded of that. Verse 7 said, when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but when he treated, but he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked from the land of Canaan to buy food, they replied. So we read that and we might think, all right, this is Joseph capitalizing on an opportunity to, to get a little revenge on his brothers, to get back at them for what they did. But I don't believe that's the case. Of course, we can't know all of Joseph's uh, intentions throughout the whole story. Bob, you can, just, you can just press that door open and prop it open if you want. I don't know if he can hear me. <clears throat> but that one door, they, they're not finished with the work they're supposed to be doing on those doors. and we can't, we can't unlock it. But we can push it open. <clears throat> but I think what's going on here is that Joseph is testing his brothers throughout this story. He's going to test them to see if they are the same as they were before. Verses 8 through 13, Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. 
Joseph remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the weakness of the land. No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food, they said. We are all sons of one man. We are honest. Your servants are not spies. No, he said to them, You have come to see the weakness of the land. But they replied, We, your servants, were twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no longer living. So, obviously, they've been able to keep up that ruse that they had going this whole time. We're talking about over 20 years that they had been lying together, and there has been no confession of their sin. There's been no repentance, but together they have maintained this ruse. Then Joseph said to them, I have spoken, you are spies. This is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one from among you to get your brother. The rest of you will be imprisoned so that your words can be tested to see if they are true. If they are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. So Joseph imprisoned them together for three days. Now we're not told exactly why Joseph did things the way that he did, right? Why not just tell them who he is from the very beginning? Make this easy, why all the drama in the theater? Is this his way of getting back at them? Is this the only way that he thinks that his uh, family will end up coming to stay with him? I can't say any of that's impossible, but like I said, I think that he's testing to see if they've changed. Are they going to treat Benjamin the same way that they treated him? Are they still the same selfish, envious, greedy bunch that they were before? Verses 18 through 28. On the third day, Joseph said to them, I fear God. Do this and you will live. If you are honest, let one of you be confined to the guardhouse, while the rest of you go and take grain to relieve the hunger of your households. Bring your youngest brother to me so that your words can be confirmed. Then you won't die. And they consented to this. Then they said to each other, Obviously we are being punished for what we did to our brother. We saw his deep distress when he pleaded with us. But he, we would not listen. That's why this trouble has come to us. But Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to harm the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must account for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph understood them. Since there was an interpreter between them, he turned away from them and wept. When he turned back and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and had him bound before their eyes. Joseph then gave orders to fill their containers with grain, return each man's silver to his sack, and give them provisions for their journey. This order was carried out. They loaded the grain on their donkeys and left there. At the place where they lodged for the night, one of them opened his sack to feed, get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver there at the top of his bag. He said to his brothers, My silver's been returned. It's here in my bag. Their hearts sank. Trembling, they turned to one another and said, What has God done to us? Have you ever had one of those... I knew this was going to come back to bite me moments. That's what they were having. Now, it's interesting the ways that God sometimes goes about convicting us of our sins. We would, it would be great if we would just be convicted automatically from the very beginning, but that's often not the case, right? We might not be convicted about how we communicate with our children until we hear them trying to communicate the same way, right? We hear their attitude, the words they use, the tone of voice, and then we go, oh no, 
I know where that came from, and your heart sinks, and then you start to feel that conviction. You might not be convicted about the way that we treat our spouses until we start to reap the relational benefits of that pride or rudeness or thoughtlessness or arrogance, stubbornness, laziness, whatever it might be. We might not be convicted about texting while we're driving until we rear in somebody. The reality is that we often fail to feel conviction for our sins if we think that we're getting away with them. And if that's our mentality, what we fail to understand is that conviction is God's grace. Over 20 years probably felt like a long time to get away with something. But then God was using Joseph to bring conviction to his brother's hearts. In Numbers chapter 32, you see when Israel was, they were going to go across the Jordan and take the land that they were supposed to have. And the tribes of, of Reuben and Gad were like, you know what, we're okay with this land on this side of the Jordan. But uh, in talking with Moses about all this, Moses was like, well, okay, but you have to come and fight with us anyway. And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll go across with you and we'll fight with you so that you can get your land and then we'll come back here. And in Numbers 32, 23, Moses said, but if you do not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure that your sin will find you out. Well, Joseph's brothers thought their sin had finally found them out. Now, if you're not familiar with the rest of this story, we're going to find out that's not actually what was happening. But God, but because they thought that's what's happening, brought godly conviction and guilt to their hearts. And our culture is conditioning us not to be convicted of our sins, right? To not take responsibility, to not accept blame. How often do we see people pointing fingers in this world versus those who are accepting responsibility, it's not a very close race. Why? Because if you admit that you've done something wrong and you accept blame for it, then you might have to pay for what you've done. Well, who wants to do that? But the irony is that when it comes to salvation and God's grace in our lives, admitting our guilt and accepting responsibility are required so that we don't have to pay for what we've done. So it makes sense that Satan's scheme would be to make the worldly responses antithetical. You see, Satan succeeds if he gets us to think we've, quote-unquote, gotten away with our sins. Right? Who, why repent if there are no consequences? Even better for him is if we don't even recognize our sins to begin with. How are we going to repent when we don't think we've done anything wrong? Even better than that is if we can flip the definition of sin and start celebrating sin and demanding repentance for righteousness, which is what we are seeing playing out in our world every day before our eyes. But conviction is God's grace on us. Feeling guilt for our sin is not a bad thing. It is a good and necessary thing. Who here has ever repented of a sin that they weren't convicted about? Probably none of us. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly grief produces repentance 
I've used that many times in my years here. It's a good verse for you to memorize sometimes. 2 Corinthians 7, 10. Godly grief produces repentance. Holiness is what's best for us, which means that repentance is what's best for us, which means that being convicted of our sins is best for us. We are not better off if we are ignorant of them or if we think that we've gotten away with them. We are better off being convicted and forgiven. You see, there's a big difference between getting away with something and being forgiven for something. And Joseph was being used in a similar way that the Holy Spirit is used in our hearts when he convicts us of our sins, a similar way that the New Testament prescribes brothers and sisters in Christ holding one another accountable especially in terms of church discipline, when, when we see that unrepentant habitual sin and we address it, we don't just leave it alone. A similar way that God used the prophet Nathan that we've talked about many times recently to confront David about his sin with Bathsheba. God, Joseph is being used to prick the consciences of his brother's hearts, to bring their attention to the sins that they hadn't repented of, but instead had buried somewhere deep in their soul, compartmentalized. But it was their guilt, their sorrow, and their fear of the Lord that opened the door to Joseph's grace. Right? If they had acted self-righteously, not thinking that they had done anything wrong, not having guilt for their sin against Joseph, not having any fear of God. Well, Joseph wouldn't have a lot of desire to extend grace to them. <laughs> Time for an update. But similarly, like, it's our guilt and sorrow for our sins that open the door for God's grace in our lives. Right? Like, the, the Holy Spirit is the one who works to bring us there, of course, but God doesn't exalt those and distribute His grace just abundantly and freely to those who are unrepentant, who have no sorrow. Everyone is a beneficiary of God's grace. You're alive. That's God's grace. The world is not as bad as it could be. That is God's grace. But when it comes to salvation. We are saved by grace through faith, not by grace through ignorance, not by grace through calloused hearts, not by grace through self-righteousness. And so what I'm trying to say is we can't take God's grace for granted. You see, sorrow and repentance are the conductors through which God's grace flow best. His grace flows best in our sorrow, in our guilt, in our conviction that he gives to us. Silver is actually considered the best conductor of electricity because it has the highest number of movable atoms, also known as free electrons. So for a material to be a good conductor of electricity, the, it, it must be able to move the electrons. And for us to be good conductors of God's grace, God needs to be able to move freely in our hearts. And he does that through the Holy Spirit. When we're sensitive to him, he pricks our consciences. He cuts us, convicts us of our sins. But if we start to put up barriers instead, right, to, to, to instead of letting his grace flow freely, good grief, we, we start resisting and we, we ignore 
the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. We blame others. We ignore the rebukes and the love from our brothers and sisters in Christ that are trying to help us. We put up these barriers, and instead of flowing freely, it starts to be resisted, and we become resistors instead of conductors of His grace. We start to look more like plastic trying to conduct electricity rather than silver. And God is like, dude, I would love to give you my grace. Man, my grace is a lightning bolt, but your heart is a mountain of rubber. Now, am I trying to say that, that our resistance is too powerful for God? No, not at all. But we need to understand that in his word, he has told us the kind of people, the kind of hearts that he loves to distribute his grace to. James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 3.34, toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Luke 14.11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's conviction in our hearts, it takes humility. And God sometimes, he, in Joseph's brothers' lives, he's working in a unique and a challenging way to bring their attention to their sins, to convict them. And he might have to do that to us sometimes. And when he does, don't fight him about it. Like, don't let your heart be a mountain of rubber to his lightning bolt of grace. These guys will eventually see God is not trying to hurt them. He's trying to save them. Now we're going to work through Quite a bit of text. When they reached their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. The man who is the Lord of the country spoke harshly to us and accused us of spying on the country. But we told them we're honest. We're not spies. We were 12 brothers, sons of the same father. One is no longer living and the youngest is now with our father in the land of Canaan. The man who is the Lord of the country said to us, this is how I will know if you're honest. Leave one brother with me, take food to relieve the hunger of your households, and go. Bring back your youngest brother to me, and I will know that you are not spies, but honest men. I will then give your brother back to you, and you can trade in the country. As they began emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his bag of silver. When they and their father saw their bags of silver, they were afraid. Their father Jacob said to them, It's me that you make childless. Joseph is gone and Simeon is gone. Now you want to take Benjamin. Everything happens to me. Then Reuben said to his father, You can kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you. Put him in my care and I will return him to you. That was a stupid thing to say by Reuben. Not, not a good Thing, but you can see where his heart is. But Jacob answered, My son will not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is left. He alone is left. If anything happens to him on your journey, you will bring gray hairs down to my gray hairs down to Sheol in sorrow. So Jacob's having his little self absorbed pity party, but it won't last. All right, he will come to his senses. He clearly still has a favorite. Now, instead of Joseph, it's Benjamin. But the question is whether the other brothers will be envious the way that they were before about that favoritism. And I didn't share this when we studied Joseph's story earlier, but 
there's a philosopher named Cornelius Plantinga Jr. who shared what he observed as the differences between covetousness and envy. And I think it's pretty interesting what he says here. Envy is a nastier sin than mere covetousness. What an envier wants is not, first of all, what another has. What an envier wants is for another not to have it. To envy is to resent somebody else's good so much that one is tempted to destroy it. The coveter has empty hands and wants to fill them with somebody else's goods. The envier has empty hands and therefore wants to empty the hands of the envied. Envy, moreover, carries overtones of personal resentment. An envier resents not only somebody else's blessing, but also the one who has been blessed. And that's what we saw in Joseph's brothers earlier in life. They were envious. The question is whether they would still be. Would they sacrifice Benjamin for their own gain this time? 43, chapter 43. Now the famine in the land was severe. When they had used up the grain they had brought back from Egypt, their father said to them, Go back and buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man specifically warned us, You will not see me again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go. For the man said to us, You will not see me again unless your brother is with you. Why have you caused me so much trouble? Israel asked. Why did you tell the man that you had another brother? They answered, the men kept asking about us and our family. Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? And we answered him accordingly. How could we know that he would say, bring your brother here? Then Judah said to his father Israel, send the boy with me. We will be on our way so that we may live and not die. Neither we nor you nor our dependents. I will be responsible for him. You can hold me personally accountable if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, I will be guilty before you forever. If we had not delayed, we could have come back twice by now. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your packs and take them down to the man as a gift. A little balsam and a little honey, aromatic gum and resin, pistachios and almonds. Take twice as much silver with you. Return the silver that was returned to you in the top of your bags. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back at once to the man. May God Almighty cause the man to be merciful to you so that he will release your other brother and Benjamin to you. As for me, if I am deprived of my sons, then I am deprived. So his pity party was over, and now he was ready to accept whatever, whatever needed to happen. And rather than continue to whine, he decided to pray. Then... So the men took this gift, double the amount of silver and Benjamin. They immediately went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his steward, Take the men to my house, slaughter an animal and prepare it, for they will eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph had said and brought them to Joseph's house. But the men were afraid because they were taken to Joseph's house. They said, We have been brought here because of the silver that was returned in our bags for the first time in our bags the first time. They intend to overpower us, seize us, make us slaves, and tank our donkeys. So they approached Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the doorway of the house. So understandably, they were afraid. 
They're like, what in the world is going on? Why would this random group of guys from Canaan be singled out by the second most powerful man in Egypt and brought to his house? None of it makes any sense to them other than, well, this is God's really creative way of punishing us. They said, my Lord, we, we really did come down here the first time only to buy food. When we came to the place where we lodged for the night and opened our bags of grain, each one's silver was at the top of his bag. It was the full amount of our silver, and we brought it back with us. We have brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put the silver in our bags. Then the steward said, may you be well. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father must have put treasure in your bags. I received your silver. Then he brought Simeon out to them. The steward brought the men into Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet, and got feed for their donkeys. So the steward wasn't trying to insinuate that God actually, like mysteriously, magically just dropped silver into their bags. He, know, he knew what had happened. He was in on the whole thing, but he's trying to point them to the fact that, listen guys, everything that's happening is happening because of your God. And they, the difference though is that they thought it was coming from God for their ruin. But it was really coming from God for their good. And since the men had heard that they were going to eat a meal there, they prepared their gift for Joseph's arrival at noon. When Joseph came home, they brought him the gift they had carried into the house, and they bowed to the ground before him. Right there. That's the fulfillment of the first dream. He asked if they were well, and he said, How is your elderly father that you told me about? Is he still alive? They answered, your servant, our father, is well. He's still alive. And they knelt low and paid homage to him. When he looked up and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he asked, is this your youngest brother that you told me about? Then he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out because he was overcome with emotion for his brother. And he was about to weep. He went into an inner room and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. Regaining his composure, he said, serve the meal. They served him by himself, his brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who were eating with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, since that is detestable to them. And they were seated before him in order by age. From the firstborn to the youngest, the men looked at each other in astonishment. Portions were served to them from Joseph's table, and Benjamin's portion was five times larger than any of theirs. They drank and became drunk with Joseph. What a day in the life of Joseph and his brothers. And it does look like things are different than they were before. They don't appear to be the same men that they had been. Alan Ross explained it this way. He said, in this chapter, the brothers promised to take the blame for any catastrophe, responsibility. They acknowledged their culpability and made restitution for the money in their sacks honesty. They retrieved their brother from prison in Egypt, unity. They recognized that God was at work in their midst, belief, and they rejoiced in their provisions even when a brother was receiving more than they were. Gratitude. They don't appear to be the same envious, selfish men they used to be, which I'm sure was thrilling to Joseph, but also made it that much harder for him to keep his composure. But he has one last test for them. And that's where we're, we're going to read all of chapter 34 now. 44, I mean. 
Joseph commanded his steward, fill the men's bags with as much food as they can carry and put each one's silver at the top of his bag. Put my cup, the silver one, at the top of the youngest one's bag along with the silver for his grain. So he did as Joseph told him. At morning light, the men were sent off with their donkeys. They had not gone very far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Get up, pursue the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Isn't this the cup that my master drinks from and uses for divination? What you have done is wrong. When he overtook them, he said these words to them. They said to him, Why does my Lord say these things? Your servants could not possibly do such a thing. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found at the top of our bags. How could we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If it is found with one of us, your servants, he must die, and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. The steward replied, What you have said is right, but only the one who is found to have it will be my slave, and the rest of you will be blameless. So each one quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. The steward searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each one loaded his donkey and returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers reached Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell to the ground before him. What have you done? Joseph said to them. Didn't you know that a man like me could uncover the truth by divination? What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied, how can we plead? How can we justify ourselves? God has exposed your servant's iniquity. We are now my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup was found. Then Joseph said, I swear that I will not do this. The man in whose possession the cup was found will be my slave. The rest of you can go in peace to your father. But Judah approached him and said, My Lord, please let your servant speak personally to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, for you are like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, My Lord, We have an elderly father and a younger brother, the child of his old age. The boy's brother is dead. He's the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him to me so that I can see him. But we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If, if he were to leave, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, if your younger brother does not come down with you, you will not see me again. Well, this is what happened when we went back to your servant, my father. We, we reported to him the words of my Lord. But our father said, go again and buy us a little food. We told him we can't go down unless your, our younger brother goes with us. If our younger brother isn't with us, we cannot see the man. Your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One is gone from me. I said he must have been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him again. If you also take this one from me and anything happens to him, you will bring my gray hairs down to Sheol in sorrow. So if I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, his life is wrapped up with the boy's life. When he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. Then your servants will have brought the gray hairs of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. Your servant became accountable to my father for the boy, saying, If I do not return him to you, I will always bear the guilt for sinning against you, my father. Now please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let him go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. So things had been looking good, but now Joseph knows for sure. They didn't treat Benjamin like they had treated him. 
over 20 years ago. They didn't care about their father's feelings. They didn't care about Joseph's life. But now their lives have been thrown into chaos. And Judah steps up and says, listen, let me go in his place. You see, they were, they were confronted with their secret sin. Thinking their just desserts were finally being served. And their character has been tested and they're passing the test. And I want us to notice that all of these good things that we've seen in Joseph's life. And that we're now seeing in his brother's. They grew out of the soil of hardship. Their security had finally been stripped away. Jacob, you know, his family had grown to be very successful, very affluent. They had a nice, comfortable life. These brothers thought that they had gotten away with selling Joseph into slavery. And it is so often the case that financial security and comfortable lives are really good soil for unrepentant, prideful hearts. That's why Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter heaven. So if sorrow and repentance through the Holy Spirit's conviction in our hearts are the conductors through which His grace flows best... Well, hardship and turmoil are the lightning rods that attract it. Our hearts need to feel that godly guilt and conviction. And it's often the times of hardship that reach up into the sky and say, God, over here. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 18, 8 through 10, when he's talking about the metaphorical thorn in his side that he had been dealing with for years, he said, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, it's those weaknesses, those hardships that invite God's grace to flow more freely and more abundantly in our lives. We would rather it say, when I'm strong, then I'm strong. When my belly is full, then I am strong. When my 401k is healthy, then I am strong. When America is powerful and successful, then I am strong. But the strongest that we ever saw Joseph was when he was down in the dumps. The strongest that we're seeing his brothers is when they're scared for their lives. God's grace to Joseph's family was a famine. A seven-year famine that would take their security away. That would position them to be reminded of their hidden unrepentant sin. And throw their lives into chaos so that their hearts would be humbled. As Americans, we should be able to relate to this, and we need to learn from it. You see, because we have experienced in our country financial security and comfort at levels far above most of the world for a long time. And from a spiritual perspective, I am afraid that it might be to our detriment. I want you to follow along with me in some hypothetical thinking. 
All right, I know that we would all like to think that we can have all this wealth and health and, and all these privileges and all these comforts and security and peace and still follow the Lord with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our strength. But what if that's not going to work? We can pray for that to happen. We can say, God, please, don't, don't let us be the people who have to suffer and who have to go through these hardships to be used best for your kingdom and to be made holy and sanctified. Please just let us learn without having to go through all that. But what if God knows that's just not going to happen? And his wisdom and his knowledge and his sovereignty. Which do we really want more? Peace and security or humble hearts and faithful lives? Retirement or people coming to Christ? What if all of our prayers for revival in our country mean that God has to bring us down? That the economy has to crash? That our world dominance has to fall? What if for God to bring his grace in our lives, he needs to bring a famine? Are you okay with that? What if that is the answer to your prayers? Or are we only okay with revival? We only want revival if it comes with prosperity. We only want revival if it's easy. I'm not saying that we have to choose one or the other. I don't know, clearly. But if we did, would we choose correctly? That's the, my question. Are we okay reading the story of Joseph and his brothers and, and seeing all the things that God worked together for his good plans to come to fruition and to work things out in their lives, to make them more holy and prepared and to give them this kind of faith, praising God and learning from Joseph's example as he's thrown through the wood chipper of life, praising God while his brothers are changed, but that change came through a seven-year famine, do we say, Amen, Hallelujah, praise be to God Almighty, while we read this story and the stories of Paul and the apostles and the early church and the things that they went through, the deaths that they died, the example that they provided for us, praising God, saying thank you for that example of enduring faith. And we, we, we lift up God's name while we read those things, but then we secretly, unconsciously, maybe subconsciously, in the back of our minds, rebuke God if he might be considering doing something similar in our lives. Oh God, you, you wouldn't do that, would you? And God's like, ah. I'm confused, my child. Not that he's actually confused. But I, I thought you said you wanted revival. I thought you prayed for my will to be done. I thought you asked for what is best for my kingdom and my glory in this world. You see, we might be speaking out of both sides of our mouths. Please, God, help us to reach the most people with the gospel. Help us to be holy. But, but, well, but, but don't let our freedoms be taken away. Don't let us suffer. Well, might it be that God is saying, my child, my son, my daughter, that is what is best for this world. 
That is what is best for my kingdom. That is what will reach the most people. That is what will make you the most holy. And I know you can't see it right now, but I need you to trust me because my power is made perfect in your weakness, in your insults, in your hardships, in your persecutions. The weaker you get, the more magnified my power becomes in you. So here's the question, is God enough for us? Is he enough? Are you okay with being a Christian if one day that doesn't come with the benefits package that you might be experiencing right now? If one day it doesn't come with a house anymore, it doesn't come with being able to find your favorite snacks at the grocery store, it doesn't come with TV and Wi-Fi, what if, will you still come to church if that means we can't meet in a place like this, but we have to meet outside in the rain or in the cold or in the blazing sun or stuffed, crammed into someone's stuffy little basement. And if anybody catches us, it means that we might go to prison. Is God enough for us? How about this one? Are you okay with being Christian if one day it means you can't even be American anymore? If that's not even a thing. Is Christian enough? What if God raised up this country for a job and that job is over? What if we end up being another Babylon? I don't know, but what if, if that's the case, is God enough? We need to understand his grace is sufficient. It's a lightning storm beyond your wildest dreams. And it comes in many forms. You see, his grace is not only in the stable job, right? the accident-free road trip, the healthy baby, the clean bill of health, the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, the right to bear arms, things like that. His grace, we can praise God for the freedoms that we have. We can say, thank you, God. His grace is most certainly found in those things, but it is also found in being kicked out of the garden. It's found in the flood in the prison, in the lion's den, in the famine, in the fiery furnace. And it is on the cross where an innocent God-man died on behalf of us. God's grace is found in his conviction, the Holy Spirit's conviction in our hearts for our sins that leads us to repentance and life. And so... Let's welcome whatever lightning rod God may need to use in our lives and make our hearts conductors of his grace, not resistors, not piles of rubber. I hope we can do that together. I don't know why. <laughs> we're, we're going through Genesis, and Genesis has a lot We've a lot of failure, a lot of suffering, a lot of disappointment, and and so you're learning a lot about that. And uh, you might, you might need to stop to think. Maybe there's a reason. 
I, I think about that often. I'm like, God, man, I don't know what you're, I just keep waiting. I'm like, I don't know when, when, when the tests are coming. Because I look at my life and I'm like, it's been, it's been awfully easy. And, and I keep asking God, I'm like, okay, God, just help me to be the person that doesn't have to go through that stuff. But I, I want to be prepared if it comes. And, and I think you should be too. Because ultimately, we, we just need to want what is best for God's kingdom. And, and that might mean something different than what we've had in our minds. The answer to our prayers might not look the way that we expected. So let's be conductors of his grace.